Okay, so let's start from the bottom here. Ramchal summarizes what he has taught so far and cites numerous additional proofs to it. Man was not created for a situation in this world, but rather for his future situation in the world to come. This is, I think, uh, one of the hallmarks of our religious philosophy. And I almost think that it's inseparable from the idea of God. Once you accept the idea of God, you're essentially, what, what you're admitting to or what you're signing up for is that there's these parallel existences. There's these different, what we call different worlds. You know, God is not an our, God's not a physical thing. Our world's a physical world. Uh, God is from some other realm. And thus, when there's a convergence, i.e. Torah or any form of religion, there's an admittance to an existence of these two worlds. And the fact that the Almighty gives us Torah and gives us mitzvos, that means that we have some sort of connection to that world. So to us, like we're very mystified by the concept of the world to come because a lot of it is because in our society that you know the christian ideology is a little bit pervasive and therefore their ideas kind of i would say bleed into to the general understanding of of of, of these words but also there's a lot of different things there's Maimonides himself writes he says there's so many different elements that we get to we unfortunately conflate them like what's Gan Eden, Garden of Eden. What is Mashiach? What is Laaslo in the future? What's Tchiasemesa, Resurrection of the Dead? And what's Olam Abba, the next world? They seem to be all some other world and some other time period, and we don't really know how to divide them, what each one of them really is. And that's why he spends, he writes a whole treatise on this subject to say, okay, this is that, and going one th- one after another, what's Mashiach, what's Ganeidim, what's Chesamesim, what's Re- Resurrection of the Dead, what's Olam Abba, what's the next world. Uh, but as a foundational idea, the existence of what's regrettably called the afterlife is a central element of religion. What, what he's saying it's a little bit of an extension. This is why I don't like when it's called afterlife. What do you say if you just read it? He says, man was not created for his situation in this world, but rather for his future generation in the world to come. So when we say afterlife, what's inherent in the term afterlife? There's life, and there's afterlife. So what we're saying, when we say afterlife, we're saying this is life, and what comes afterwards is some other thing that's afterlife. What he's saying is, no, 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 no. Man was created for the next world. No, Thus, no, no. that's life. What we're here, it's not that this is life and that's afterlife. That's life. We're here in pre-life. He's, he's, he's clearly looking at the forest, not at the trees. He's looking at the big picture. And he's saying, there's two worlds and we've established that the purpose, the goal, the objective of man is that world, and this world is not the objective. And thus, uh, my pet peeve is that we call it afterlife, and that's a little bit of a mistake, because that's giving primacy to our life here, and just giving us comfort to know that 
when we die, it's not just all blackness and, 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 and nothingness. There's something there. That, that's okay, but I would prefer if we'd say, we're here in pre-life, and we're getting ready for the afterlife. And he does bring these examples. He, he says that this world is a corridor before the next world. So suppose you were going to a wedding in a fancy hall or hotel or destination, right? So you're, in, you're going to the destination wedding, uh, but the, the goal is the destination. You're not in the destination. Uh, you're there, you're trying to prepare yourself to get ready for the destination. Uh, but we don't necessarily look at this world as just a preparation. We think we're at the destination. And this is really, the, what he's saying, we're accepting what he, we're just reading it, but we have to realize that fundamentally, we don't actually believe this, or we don't actually live by this. Because if we did, we'd become like angels. Right? And, and, and this is really the conflict of life. The conflict of life is that the truth is we're in pre-life. And Olamaba is life. That's the truth. And that's the reason why God created us. But if we knew that, if we felt like that instinctively, if that was intuitive to us, then life would have no meaning. We're a bunch of automatons. We're robots. We're androids just doing the will of God. Thus, God had to create tension and conflict. And thus, God puts us in this corridor, in this world, in this pre-life, but hoodwinks us, or at least conditions us, to associate this life as life, this world as an end, and not even to think at all about the destination, about life itself. So we're making a mistake in confusing pre-life with life. It's hard for everyone, of course. We're conditioned. If it was easy, everyone would do it, right? It's, it's certainly not easy, but the question is, it, it, okay, so, so right, we're here talking, right? Okay. I'm going to make an argument and tell me if there's any holes in the argument, right? Everyone here is, we're all very intelligent, right? So I'm going to say an argument and you tell me if there's any flaws in the logic, just the logic. Okay. So my argument's like this. Suppose, so now it's in the news, the former governor of Texas is going to head the EPA. He's going to head the EPA. So I was like, oh. Energy. The Energy Department of Energy. The department he was going to close. If he can remember the name, right. How ironic. So everyone's talking about what's going to be with environmental policy and climate change. Okay, fine. So let's suppose that we're just accepting that climate change is real or whatever. Let's assume that's that's true. Um, I don't want to get into that argument, but suppose you have this beautiful beachfront that the waters of the sea are rising, and every couple of months it's moving up and up the beachfront. And suppose uh, you knew that, and you wanted to have a nice beachfront home. This is a beautiful beach, amazing sand, everything's wonderful, right? So you say, oh, it's, it's a steel, right? So you... You start building a massive beachfront home on the beach. It's lovely. 
And someone says to you, but wait a minute, don't you know, like in a couple of months or even maybe a couple of short years, this is all going to be underground. It's going to be a coral reef for your, your whole house that you're investing in. It's going to be full of fish because it's going to be in the water. Right? This island or this beach is disappearing. Right? So obviously in that example, it would be very imprudent for someone to invest in a commodity or in an asset that's clearly going down to zero. So what's clear is that um, we don't want to invest in things that, we don't want to invest kind of permanent funds and things that are temporary. Uh, now, what we know for sure, what we know for sure is that all of us are going to die, right? That we know. It's not comfortable to think about it, to talk about, but it's true. And even if they extend life with vitamins and whatnot, Maybe we have to live to 100, 120, 150, but it's very unlikely for us to think about that we'll live more than that. But even someone like Adam, according to the Bible, Adam lived to 930. Right, it's a long time. Uh, I would have 900 years to go, right? <laughs> it's all, it, still, even Adam's been dead for thousands of years and has been dead a lot longer than he's alive. So, so the argument goes that it's silly for someone to invest only on things that are temporary and are guaranteed at some point within the next hundred years to go back down to zero, right? Because anything that you invest in your bodily life, that is no use for you once your body is in the ground, right? And it starts to decompose. However, your soul, your soul is eternal. So the argument goes, of course, it doesn't mean to neglect your body, but does it make sense to only invest in the investments that go to a hedge fund? Say, we only invest in things that are guaranteed to go to zero. No, no one would do that. Maybe you have some things that go to zero. Okay. But to ignore and neglect the part of our lives that are eternal, well, that would be insane. And I think what he's describing first is fact. Is the fact is, is that uh, Olamaba is the goal. That's what he's saying. That's why Hashem created us. But I think the logic to help us kind of get over the hump is that, okay, we could choose to invest in this world or the next world, in our body or our soul, right? That paradigm. What we know for sure is that anything we invest in this world and in our body has a shelf life. However long it is, who knows? It could be tomorrow. We don't know how long we're going to last. It could be tomorrow. We hope not. We hope to live a long life, but it could, right? But it is temporary. I'm not saying to neglect that to become an ascetic, but to only invest in that and to neglect Olamaba, well, that would be insane. Okay, well, let's, let me repeat David's question for anyone who didn't hear it. David is saying, he is contending with what I'm arguing. I'm saying, well, your soul is eternal. Your body, by definition, everyone agrees your body is temporary, right? Because you can't last past 100 years. We died, body's put on the ground. It gets decomposed, right? So our body is temporary, soul's permanent. Well, and the argument that I'm presenting and, the, and that uh, Lutsato is presenting is that you should invest in your permanent self, certainly, and not neglect it, because that's really the part of you that's permanent. Oh, yeah. That's what I said. Says Dave, wait a minute. If your soul is recycled and you're going to be reincarnated, so your soul is going to go to someone else, 
Therefore, well, it's temporary. Is that your question? Yes. Okay, I like the question a lot because I think it's a great learning opportunity to explain something very critical. Okay, so let's take the idea of reincarnation. So reincarnation, we have one soul and multiple bodies. A soul gets put, recycled into another body. It gets recycled maybe to a third, a fourth, a fifth, right? One soul, multiple bodies. So when we ask the question, when someone gets resurrected, body and soul come together again. Well, which body are you going to put to the soul? It's a good question, right? If the person, the soul has had 10 host bodies, which one of them is it going to use when it gets resurrected? This, this, this is a good question. It's a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit of a, you know, a, a, a tongue twister for your mind. It's called mind twister. Mind bending question. It's a good question. But I think the question is really born out of a, a, a critical mistake that we're making. Hear me out. Suppose I went into someone's closet and I looked at the amount of suits that they have or dresses or pants or whatever or shoes. And I say to them, okay, I want to put your, I want to put you together with a jacket or suit, a set of clothing. So you'll say to me, what, what, slow down. I'm, I'm your butler. I'm going to your closet. How could I possibly give you if so many, so many of them? Right? You say, well, just pick one, right? Right? You can pick one, pick a nice one, right? Pick one or, or get a new one. The answer to your question is, the body is merely a vessel for the soul. So who you are essentially is your soul. So your question is, if I have my soul going to someone else, well, then it's temporary. The truth is, you're temporary, so to speak. You, that question is like, well, my body is me, and now if my soul goes to someone else's body, they have my soul. The truth is, no, 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 no. Your soul is you. And thus, when it's using bodies, it's like you using your suits. Just because you're wearing a different suit, you're not a different person, right? The, 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 the body is merely clothing for the soul. So when you, reincarnation means that your soul sheds one fleshy pants and one fleshy jacket, and it goes up to heaven, it gets polished a little bit, and comes back down and zippers up a new fleshy pants and a new fleshy... So when we ask the question... When I come back body and soul, which which body am I going to have? And that's a perplexing question. But I'll say to them, when you come back next week, which which shirt, are you, which sweater are you going to wear? So I don't know. Does it really, really matter? I'm going to come. All I know is I'm going to be there. But which sweater are you going to wear? Why is that? Why does that matter? It's just a sweater. You zip it up. You put on a different one. It doesn't matter. And in fact, there's a little bit of a a little nugget here. Listen to this nugget. So the Talmud, well, the, the Midrash that I quoted in Tanhum and Pekude, number three, it says that all the souls that have ever existed and ever will exist were all created during the six days of creation. And then it gives a description what happens when the soul and the body are initially married, are initially fused. That's that. Uh, what it says in the Talmud it's going about, okay, so where are these souls hanging out before they get put in a body, before they get injected 
into a physical essence. So the Talmud says there's a box or a chamber, an otzer in Hebrew. It means a box or a chamber that's called guf. It's a heavenly chamber called guf. That's the name of the chamber. And in it are contained all the souls that have ever existed. Okay? That have not yet been placed in the body. Now, what does the, what does the word guf in Hebrew mean? Body, doesn't it? Guf means body. What it's telling us, there's a great lesson by the name of the box that holds the souls. It's called body because the lesson is that a body is nothing more than a box for a soul. It's, it's the sweater, it's the box that you're placing your soul in. Thus, if you want to name, if you want to name your body, there's no better name. What's a body? Well, we think of a body as our essence. That's our mistake. The body is just the box or the vessel that's holding our soul. <laughs> Thus, in heavens, there's some sort of box that holds souls, and it too is called goof, because it too is nothing more than a box that holds the soul. And our physical goof, our physical body, is also nothing more than something which harbors, which, which is a haven for our soul, and therefore it's called our body. But the tension like we all know, is that we don't think of our goof as nothing but a sweater, fleshy pants, or a box for a soul. We think of it as our essence. And because we think of it as our essence, if our soul is harboring someone else's body, well, then it's, it's temporary. But the truth is, it's not our essence. The soul is our essence. The body is just the vessel that holds it, I'm moving my soul from one vessel to the other vessel. What's the matter? Well, that was my next question. Couldn't you have a body without a soul? You could. It's called a dead body. (laughs) It's called a a cadaver. It's called a corpse. The soul, right, its it's roots are very pure. It's in the heavens. It's in this box called goof. It's a really special thing. But once it comes here, all hell could break loose. Because the soul is now in flux. Because the tension exists, there's the body and the soul, and all these things are now contributing factors, and thus the essence of the person, i.e. the soul, is is in danger, really. It could get corrupted, it could get tainted. Let's look a little bit at the development of the child because it's very instructive. If we want to kind of deconstruct ourselves, we have to look at the various teachings that we have about the development and construction of a child, because if we work backwards, we could see what we're comprised of. So the there's another source. You guys can write these all down if you're interested. So this is uh, in the Talmud in Nida on page 30b. Um, if you take it all together, you notice that there's various different stages in the development. So we have the soul in this spiritual box called Guf. It's just a soul. It has no influences of no bodily or worldly or Yetzirah influences. It's totally pure. Now, at conception, the Midrash tells us that the first thing that happens at conception is that there's one angel, there's two angels involved here at conception. There's one angel who takes the primordial biological matter 
and affixes upon that statuses. Then that's limited to the physical essence of the person, right? Because there's no soul yet. Okay, so hold that, hold it off to the side. Then the Almighty tells another angel, go to the box, get me this particular soul, and he describes the soul, what it looks like, what its name is, and says, get me that one. Which tells you, by the way, that not all souls are equal. Some souls look, their souls look different. Which is an interesting thing. Because if they don't look different, it wouldn't make sense to say to the angel, go get me this one that looks like this and like that. Because if they're all the same, they would look the same. Okay. Now, so the angel goes, uh, brings that soul before God, and the soul starts bowing down for God before God, and is so excited about this momentous Exper- experience uh-huh. until until it realizes where it's going, and then it goes absolutely ballistic. Well, the mighty looks at the two angels and says, "Okay, you're holding the drop. You're holding the soul. Fuse them together." And the and the soul starts to complain. And if you break down the complaints of the soul, you'll notice they fall into two separate categories. There's one complaint where the soul is disappointed about the two worlds. So Ramchal talks about this world versus the next world. There's a physical world and a spiritual world. Says Ramchal, uh, says, says the soul, I'm very happy in this world. Don't put me in that world. The soul is not happy to be in this world. Okay, number one. Number two, the soul is absolutely reviled to have its identity compromised when it's mixed and fused with that biological matter. The notion that we could point ourselves and say, me, this is who I am, a body, that is absolutely treasonous to the soul, and he's very disappointed about that. So those are the two elements of his frustration. Critically, there's no Yetzirah involved. Someone mentioned Yetzirah. Yetzirah, actually, according to the Talmud in Sanhedrin 91b, shows up not at conception, but at birth. Thus, anytime you study anything about the status of a child in utero, you know that the reason why the child's different physiologically, it's because they don't have a Yetzirah. So any teaching that you have in your head that you could perhaps conjure about the status of a child in utero, if you have any, if you know anything about that, that's a function of the child not being dominated by a Yetzirah because that kicks in at birth. Thus, if you ever heard the teaching that an angel comes and smacks the child in the mouth, makes them forget the Torah, if you ever heard that, that happens at birth with the injection of the Yetzirah. And concludes the Midrash, a third time the soul starts to complain at birth because the soul does not want to have the Yetzirah foisted upon it. Thus, we could, see, we could perhaps say, just in conclusion of this particular narrative, that a, that a soul is disappointed for three reasons. 
Number one, because it doesn't like the, this world. Number two, doesn't like the body. And number three, does not like to be dominated by the soul. By, by the Yetzirah. It does not like to be dominated by the Yetzirah. Those are the three disappointments of the soul. Now, if you look, this, this might be a little bit surprising. If you look at that particular source in the Talmud, actually both sources that talk about that development, the one from the Midrash in Tanhuma, Pekure, number three, and the one from Nida 30b, both of them describe instructions given to the soul, given to the child at birth. And the instructions are, be a tzaddik, be righteous, don't be a rasha, don't be wicked, it says some other things, and then at the end it says, make sure you guard the purity of the soul. And don't let it become impure. So this, be a tzaddik, don't be a rasha. It doesn't tell us what, what it means to be a tzaddik versus a rasha. So what do we have here? We have the soul is really happy to be in the spiritual box in heavens. It's so happy. And then it's like, oh, you have to go into this world. It's disappointed. Oh, you have to be merged with the body. Very disappointed. Oh, you're blanketed with the Yetzirah. Inordinately disappointed. Why? Because those are compromises on its purity. It's in its most pure state in the box. And now it's compromised. It's in this world. It's in the body. It's got a Yetzirah. It's not so pure. Child's told, be a tzaddik. Don't be a rasha. Now the term tzaddik, what does that word mean? Righteous. righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? To be godlike. What does that mean? Well, how do you do it? How do you become a tzaddik? Because you have to live and raise yourself. I'm hearing different things here. Mitzvahs, Torahs, above this world, be godlike. We all seem to know what a tzaddik is, but what specifically? Remember, the child before they're born is told, be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. By being the highest compliment, if you're created in his image, be the best image you can be. But we're getting some diversity of a, a diversity of a... Okay, I like all these things. What do the sources say? So I've researched this, and I've found tens of sources on rendering someone a tzaddik or a rasha. What does it mean? But what, what are the parameters? So I found, I found many different sources that say that to be a tzaddik is to do mitzvos. I found many other sources that say to, to be a tzaddik is to fight your yetzerah, to battle with yetzerah. I found a third set of sources that look at a tzaddik as someone who is living for Olam Haba. The world to come. The world to come. And then we see a juxtaposition between the instruction, be a tzaddik, no be a rasha, and the instruction, preserve the holiness of your soul. The soul is about to be born. It, it, it's given instruction, be a tzaddik, don't be a rasha. Number one. Number two, preserve the purity of the soul. Now we know... Then why'd you put me in this body? Well, that's the challenge. 
Right? But we know why is the soul's purity compromised? Well, we said it's disappointed because it's put in a body. It's disappointed because it's put in a world. It's disappointed because right. it has the Eitzara. Right. Each one of those are threats to its purity. Right. To be a tzaddik means to maintain the purity of your soul. Well, why is the soul under uh, under assault? Because of those three reasons. Yeah. Thus, the three reasons that we're told to, uh, of classifications of a tzaddik, they are exactly corresponding to the three reasons why a soul may become impure. Your job is to be a tzaddik, which means preserve the purity of your soul, which means fend off the various incursions and encroachments upon the purity of your soul. So, Rabbi, so what you're saying in logic is the the, the purpose of our life is to let our soul go back where it began. Exactly. The purpose of life is to undo the various stages of impurity foisted upon your soul. And then your soul can go back to its original... Exactly. You look at Moshe. There's a fascinating and incredible description of Moshe's death. Because for our soul, death is liberation. That's what it is. It's now trapped in the body, trapped in the world. It's got a Yetzirah. It wants to leave. It wants to escape. Suppose I got rid of my Yetzirah. I fought it. I battled it. I was successful. I eradicated it. Well, then my body in this world becomes a little bit easier for the soul to, to live in, right? Suppose I lived in this world, even though I'm here, I lived for all of my body. Well, my soul is even happier now. Suppose I identify with my soul. I did all three. All three realms of a tzaddik. If I did those, well, my soul is really happy to be here because it's no different. It's living in this world, but it's, it's as if it's living in all my body because the priorities are all aligned. It's living in the body, but the body is not a factor. I'm identifying entirely as a soul. And it doesn't have the Yetzirah to butt heads with. It's very happy. So the Midrash describes the death of Moses. And there's a very interesting preamble to the death of Moses. Because God says, um, he wants to send the angel Gabriel to go take the soul of Moses. Moses. So, God, so Moshe sees the angel coming. And he tells him, what are you here? I'm here to take your soul. No, you're not. And he starts fending him off. And one angel after another, after another, he's able to just swat them away like flies. And then finally, it's a very long narrative. It's a beautiful, if you could, if you could find, they have English tra- copies of the Midrash. This is the last Midrash in Devarim Rabbah. Rabbah means the great one, which means the great Midrash, which is the largest book of Midrash on the Torah, in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, the very last story that happens in the Torah's death of Moshe, the very last description of, uh, of the Midrash is describing the death of Moses, Moses. So, all the angels are unsuccessful to get Moshe, and then God himself says, I'm going to go get Moshe. And the, the Midrash records a discussion, a narrative. God is calling the soul from within the body of Moshe. And he says to her, Biti, my daughter, come, I have the best place for you. Come out of the body of, of Moshe. 
I have a wonderful place for you in the highest realms in Olamaba. I got it all prepared for you. And the soul resists. The soul says, no, 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 no. There's no better place in the world, i.e., this world is happy for me, and there's no better venue than the body of Moshe. What he's, what he, what the soul is saying is that, of course there's no Yetzirah here to, to, to sully me, and there's no body, so to speak, to have a clash of identity with, and this world that Moshe created for himself is the spiritual world. I want to stay here. Is there any better place in the world than the body of Moshe? So thus, the soul for everyone, so to speak, when we start off, the soul is like, what's going on? You're putting me in the body. You're putting me in this world. You're throwing gates around me. I don't want to get me out of here. In fact, the Midrash has to tell, tells us that the Almighty appoints angels to stand guard on the soul so it doesn't escape. The soul is so miserable, it's looking for ways to escape. The Almighty has to place two angels to guard it so it doesn't run away. Moshe's soul, it's like, this is the best place, because Moshe was so, was, was a tzaddik in all three areas to the nth degree, therefore the soul is perfectly happy to be harbored in his, in his body. Now, you ask the question of what are the 903 deaths, right? Okay, what are the 903 deaths? So this is sourced in the Talmud, in Brachos, on page 8, 8a. And the Talmud says, it quotes a verse, 903 different kinds of deaths. What it's describing is a reflection of someone's success and or failure of their fulfilling their mission to become a tzaddik to preserve the purity of the soul. If the soul becomes impure, it becomes further embedded into the body, it loses its identity, and it gets enmeshed into the body. Thus, separating the two is a difficult process. Whereas, if the soul maintains its purity, separating the two is very seamless. So that's the Talmud. There's 903 kinds of deaths. The best one of them, the worst one of them is called Askara. It's the name of the death. Askara is like separating thorns that have gotten enmeshed in a ball of wool. Wool's very thick. You put thorns that get stuck into, into wool. Like if you have a sheep walking through the thicket and it gets caught up, it can't move because the, you know, the, the thorns get so embedded into the wool that it becomes inseparable. You want to pull it out. You got to pull and yank and claw and, and you pull it out and little bits of thorn are left inside and little bits of wool are pulled out. It's a huge mess. That's the worst kind. That's separation of body and soul, separation of physical and spiritual, separation of this world and that world, separation of Yetzirah and soul. Those things became so impure and so non-distinct that to separate the two, well, that's a very difficult thing. Whereas the best kind of death is called nishika, which means, uh, which, which is akin to separating a hair that has fallen into a glass of milk. You have a little black hair floating in the glass of milk. You pull it out, it's totally smooth, and 
seamless. This, okay, so what, what's, what's, what's interesting about this is that this is not describing pain, physical pain. It's describing spiritual pain. So we have, we have, no, we have no idea what the pain is like. We have no idea because it's not something we can experience. Well, the Rambam, when he talks about these matters, he does say that there are some arenas of our lives that we can feel spiritual pain or pleasure. He gives an interesting example. He says, suppose, you know, people who take revenge. Revenge does not make sense logically because you don't actually benefit from it in a physical, tangible way. He says it's almost a spiritual pleasure, <laughs> which is it's strange for us because it's not a positive spiritual pleasure, but it, yeah. it's a negative spiritual pleasure. But it's something that we we understand, like to spite someone who did bad to you, yeah. that really tantalizes us. Yeah. But you cannot explain how it benefits you tangibly. You yeah. can't. So what's that's an example of this realm of spiritual pain and pleasure. You see the pleasure of your children; they're flourishing. Or, God forbid, they're suffering. That's not physical pain. That's spiritual pain and pleasure. And it's as real. Oh, it's much real, much more real. That's the most pain or pleasure someone could have is the, is the success and failure, God forbid, of their children. And you see, that's a great example, right? If someone's child is in pain, it causes more pain than if, if the parent would have that same amount of pain themselves physically. It's amplified. Spiritual pain is always amplified. So we read one line. <laughs> That's typical. <laughs> yes, That's typical. And uh, but it's it's a very. Can you read the line again? Yeah, let's read it. Let's read it again. Yes, the line was the general principle is as follows: Man was not created for a situation in this world, but rather for his situation in the world to come, which is also called the Ramam calls the world to come the world of the souls. Logically, we know it makes sense to invest in the soul, but we don't feel that intuitively. We don't feel that innately. That's kind of an idea that's not so tangible. To us, our bottom line, our car, our house, our, our physique, those things rise to the top, even though we know no one is buried in their house. Well, maybe some people are, but most people are not. Almost no one's buried with their car, right? There are some people that are buried with their car, right? We know that. Those people that they drive the Ferrari, right? But they still can't drive it, right? There's there's a lot of traffic. And their physique, what happens to your physique when you put it in the ground? It starts to shrivel up. But So that's logical, but it's hard for us to feel that because of this tension that that we have in life. Of course not. Not to neglect it. But to neglect the soul would be even... Right. So yes, we're not saying don't neglect your body, but certainly don't neglect your soul. But again, we're trying to live a better life here, so we'll have a, a seat on the fifty-yard line as opposed to the nosebleed. A hopeful, I, I take the nosebleed, right? But we want to be in the stadium. <laughs> Let's get in the stadium first. But but, uh, but, 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 but I mean, what I'm saying is, the world to come really, really do have a better life here. Well, what he we're trying to set things up for. That's also true. The truth is, is that. The truth is, is that that's another very good argument that if someone lives a righteous moral life here, their soul is happy, yes, but they're actually not forfeiting that much. 
They think they're forfeiting. Their body, Yetzirah, everyone's yeah. like, oh, you gave it. I gave, I gave an example, yeah, right? Surface. People, people that, people that are observant of Shabbat, right? It's a mitzvah. It's one of the greatest mitzvahs in the Torah. So for people that didn't grow up with that or not used to that, to them, the thought of a observance of Shabbat is the absolute pain and it's the, it's the, Oh gosh, you'd be cooped up in your house with your family. <laughs> How terrible is that? You gotta turn off your phone and your TV, right? All these things you can't do. It sounds like hell, right? It sounds terrible. You ask people that are observant of Shabbat, what's the highlight of your week? What's the best time you could possibly have? What's something you would never give up for anything? Shabbat. It's Shabbat. So there is a divide between perception of reality and reality itself. So perception of Shabbos. Right? Someone who's outside looking in, they're like, oh, that's, that must be to- so much pain, so much agony. You're just stuck in your, with yourself, with your family. Oh, horrible, right? So you observe and it's vacation every week. Oh, it's much more than vacation. It's, it's, it's spiritual pleasure. You're kind of almost living for that day, aren't you? I, it's, it's yeah. the highlight of our week, by far. We love it. <laughs> okay, but uh, but Monica, Monica, it's possible. You're right. If if, you're, but I would say that it's quite likely that the reason why we like each other is because of Shabbat. Not we don't like Shabbat because of we like our family. We we like our family because of Shabbat, because that is a time to invest in your family and to enjoy the family. So I I so I think you're you're saying a good point. It's that people think that Torah. All these restrictions and all these prohibitions and just, oh, God is trying to make our life miserable. That is the delusions of your Yetzirah. That's the distortions of, that's what your soul is worried about. That you're not going to see reality clearly. You're not going to identify with it. You're not going to think about the Olam You're not going to think about the grand purpose. All right? And that, and that, that's fixed, right? You know, that's, well, it's not fixed, but that's, uh, that's the way, that's our default. But the truth is, once you actually dip your toe in it, you realize, actually, I was mistaken. And it's actually a lot more pleasurable even here. It means, some people say, well, you live for Olam Abba. Well, then you're just saying, be miserable here, so you'll be happy in Olam Abba. But the truth is, the truth is, you, if you actually identify with the soul and gave it what it needs, which, by the way, it needs food, like our body needs food, mitzvahs are food for the soul. If you actually feed your soul, you realize that you'll be happier here. And when you combine the physical and the spiritual in a way that the soul is happy and the body is happy, that's why you're delighted. It, 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 it's, it's just a perfect confluence of pleasure. How could the body and soul be happier? On Shabbos, you have the wonderful food and it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to have a delectable meal. Wow, where do I sign? It sets up a better next life. Well, for sure, because your soul is, is being, his needs are being addressed. Just to finish this point, what's a mitzvah? So we say mitzvah, a good, a good deed. So how many mitzvahs are there? 613. Okay, good. You know what the Talmud says? The Talmud says that there's 613 parts of your soul. Did you know that? Do you think that's a coincidence? No. No. It's the same thing that sinews and... That's right. But that's physical and spiritual. What that means is that you, when you do a mitzvah, there's something corresponding in your body and your soul that are linked to that mitzvah.
So, and, and it's as if, just like you have to feed your body, you have to feed your soul. Well, what is your, what, where do you put food? Where's the food for the soul? The answer is, food for the soul is mitzvos. And the 613 mitzvos, one mitzvah feeding each part of your soul. So if someone does all the mitzvos, their soul is well fed. You get to Olam Abba, right? So you're shedding your body. You're shedding your body. So what do you have a soul? Well, what does your soul look like? Is it healthy? Has it been fed? Or, God forbid, was it neglected? Starving. Oh. Starving or it's dead. Yeah. And thus, it's almost, means there's, there's, there's no shtick here. There's, 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 there's no like, we think of Olam Abba as some ticket that you get. No, it's not a ticket. You do a mitzvah, you're feeding your soul. All about is your body is stripped away. We take off the sweater. What are you? You're a soul. Okay. How's the soul look like? Is it healthy? Does it have all 613 elements of it? Well, it is dependent upon whether or not it is healthy. Did you feed it or not? If you don't feed it, it starts to wither away. If you do one mitzvah, you'll have one limb. You'll have one limb flapping around in all my ba, which is, it's still a good thing. It's a, not, not, we don't minimize anything in spirituality. We don't minimize, we don't minimize anything. But that soul's not very happy, is it? It's not happy, but we don't minimize anything, right? If, if, to give life to... Does have to come down again? Maybe. It's going to be hard with one limb. Yeah, really. Okay, so we're getting a little bit off topic here. He's going to look at other souls, not all 613 and get jealous. So, good question. How do you make up for those? By doing the other ones for No. <laughs> how do you make up for how do you make up for that? Huh? You could. Otherwise, you have to. Otherwise, your soul is is, is lacking. Do you think I'm so, going to go out in my neighborhood and start so burning oxes? Like Torah do, study. Oh, okay, because you can't do offerings. But you know what? Pray or something. That's right. So people are obsessed. Torah, like Jewish history, Jewish uh, cultures, obsessed with Torah study, obsessed with it. This is one of the reasons why. There's a lot of reasons why. One of the reasons why is Torah study is a multivitamin. One mitzvah addresses one element of your soul. Well, you want the whole soul to be addressed. Is there some sort of magic formula? Is there this elixir of life? Yeah. It's called Torah. It's a tree of life. It's, it's spelled out in front of you. It's life for your soul. Study Torah, and that is able to cover all the gaps that you have with mitzvos. So you could do a hundred mitzvos. Well, because you can't be a kohen, you can't. Right? It's not possible for us to fulfill all the mitzvos. So how do we address our soul? Torah study fills in the gaps, because Torah study is a mitzvah that covers all mitzvos, and therefore all parts of our soul can be infused with life via Torah study. Thus, you strip away the body. You have the soul. What does the soul look like? It looks like exactly what it was tended to in this world. We're here to tend our soul. We tend our soul. Our soul is healthy. When everything else is removed, we have a healthy soul. We get to Olam Abba, and we're healthy. So let me give you, let's flip this around. What someone says, some people say, I, uh, I like mitzvahs, but there's one of them I don't, oh, I don't do. For whatever reason. This one's not for me. That is akin to saying, I like my limbs. I love them. Oh, Except for this part. 
except for <laughs> except for my I don't know my, my, my uh, hopefully it's just a pinky right this one doesn't doesn't really what's called it that, that's insane right but the reason we have a mistake we think that mitzvahs are just some good deed it's more than a good deed it's food for part of our essence which is our which is our body and just like Noah would say this pinky I don't really need it the truth is. I don't really need it. You kind of drive without it, right? You drive like this, right? We really don't need it, but we identify as a body, therefore, we're like, yeah, it's all part of the whole big thing. We don't want to cut off any part of it, right? And a mitzvah is life for a certain part of our soul. We want our whole soul to be complete because, quick secret, it's much more us than our body. We cannot neglect a single mitzvah. 